Okay, if you have Bibles with you, please open up to the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 1. Um, we are in a series of messages based on the Gospel of John. Um, I haven't done this in a while, but I thought it would be good to, to kind of go through uh, the Gospel. We'll start at one end and work our way to the other. Um, we've worked through verse 35 so far, uh, and we're going to pick up at verse 35 today, and, and we'll, finish up, uh, we'll finish up chapter 1. So if you're open uh, to John 1, follow along, please, as I begin reading in verse 35. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did, uh, the first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ, and brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, were from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked, Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, approaching, he said to him, He truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree, before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You'll see greater things than that. Then he added, very truly, I tell you, you'll see heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth and the, the power that's in your word. Lord, I pray that your word would have its full impact on us and as a result, make us to be more like you. Amen. Amen. So this is a, an account of the, the calling in John's Gospel, the calling of the first uh, disciples. John finishes up chapter 1 uh, with the calling of the first five disciples. Andrew, Peter, Philip, Nathaniel, and what we can, we can safely uh, presume is also John the Gospel writer. So let's, um, let's walk through this. I'm gonna, it's a, a little bit larger section than I've done before, but why don't we just walk through it a bite at a time? I'll take a verse or two at a time, make some comments on it, and we'll work our way down uh, through it. Make some observations at the end. Uh, 
So verse, verses 35 and 36. You know, I, I like to read the whole thing in the beginning to give you a sense of context, but then slice it up in the bite-sized pieces. So verse 35 and 36, the next day, John was there again with, his, with two of his disciples. Uh, when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God. You know, John's already said this in verses 29 to 31 of this very same chapter. I'll read those to you. It says, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the one I meant when I said a man comes after me uh, has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. So I wonder, you know, did John say this every time, you know, he saw Jesus? I don't know. He saw Jesus and boom, Lamb of God. <laughs> Is that how it worked for him, you know? I have this thing Nadine and I do together. You know, she'll walk in the room and say, pretty girl. And we kind of parrot back to each other. She says to me, handsome man. <laughs> so I don't know. Is this the way it was with John the Baptist? He sees Jesus. He says, Lamb of God. I don't know. <laughs> Lamb of God. Or was this more a prophetic declaration concerning the cross? Right? John's a prophet. John the Baptist is a prophet. He sees Jesus and he's making this declaration. Lamb of God. Right? Hebrews would understand what that meant. This is the sacrifice for sin. Verse 37. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. They followed Jesus. You know, John the Baptist didn't seem to really care about gathering disciples to himself. He was perfectly satisfied to have these disciples leave his circle and follow Jesus. Actually, if you think about it, it fulfilled John's ministry uh, to see that happen. It didn't take away from what he'd been called to do. I think pastors today can learn a lot from John's example. We don't own or control the people entrusted to our care. You know, really, we're just here pastors, we're just here to point people to Jesus. You know, as the years go by, I've been a pastor a long time, as the years go by, I see my role less and less and less as a behavior modifier and more as a matchmaker. You know, in the early days, you know, it seemed like the responsibility of the pastor was to get the people to change. I gotta fix you. I gotta shape you. I gotta mold you. I gotta do something to make you a better Christian, right? But the harsh reality is, I don't possess the power to do that. Even scarier, you don't possess the power to do it. Only God can change us. Only God can change a human heart. So as the time has gone on, I see my role less and less as a behavior modifier. I, this might upset some people, but I don't really even care about modifying your behavior. I've lost almost all interest in it. My role now, I see it as a matchmaker. I want to help you fall in love with Jesus. And it's for a really good reason. He's the only one that can bring about any change, if change is at all necessary. He's the only one that can do it. He's God. I'm not God. So I see my role as this. I want to point you to him. I want to do everything in my power to help you fall madly 
and passionately in love with the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't want to be the church's moral policeman anymore. Let me tell you, that's not a fun job. How would you like to be the one to go around and tell everybody what they're doing wrong? Ugh, just gag me. It's horrible. hate that job. My highest calling is to help you fall in love with Jesus. I tell people that I want to do five things. I don't know if I've told you this before, but I'll tell you now. I want to be a friend of God. That's number one. Number two, I want to comprehensively experience God's extra extravagant love for me. I want to experience his love. I don't want to just comprehend his love. I don't want to have five sermons about his love for me. I want to personally experience the extravagant love of God. So I want to be a friend of God. I want to experience his extravagant love. The third thing I want to do is I want to love people as extravagantly as he loved me. That sounds like a pretty good plan so far, right? And then after that, I want to introduce my extravagantly loving friend to everyone I know. Hey, I've met someone who loves me beyond comprehension. I bet you would benefit from being loved by him too. And then the fifth thing I want to do is I want to help others experience this ongoing love affair for themselves. So I'll tell you again, number one, I want to be a friend of God. Number two, I want to comprehensively experience God's extravagant love for me. Number three, I want to love people as extravagantly as I've been loved. Number four, I want to introduce my extravagantly loving friend to everyone I know. And number five, I want to help others experience this ongoing love affair for themselves. What do you want to do? If you don't know what you want to do, try these five things for a while. I don't know, I think the church would be better off if we did that. So much more fun than being the church's moral policeman. Anyway, a little bit of a tangent. John the Baptist was, pretty, was satisfied to let two of his disciples go and no longer follow him, but follow Jesus. It was the right thing to do. It was the God thing to do. These became two of the apostles of the church, right? I know some pastors, they're pretty territorial. They're pretty insecure, too. I know them well. <laughs> I've been one for a long time. But I've told pastor friends of mine, and I'll tell you today, if God can move me from one country to another, from one coast to another, then why can't he move somebody in my church from one side of the city to another? I think, I think that's perfectly legitimate, right? I love John's heart. He, he didn't seem threatened by this. He wasn't troubled by this at all. He was happy to let two of what obviously were people with a call of God on their lives to go follow Jesus instead of still saying to follow him. Imagine if John the Baptist acted like a lot of pastors today do. No! You belong in my church. You can't go to Jesus' church. You belong in my church. That would be ridiculous to think of it that way, but that's the, sometimes the mindset. I've heard the, the most horrible things said done to people in that spirit over the years. I've heard pastors do all kind of wicked and evil and manipulative things. Like tell people every promise from God that you got while you were in this church, it stays here when you leave. It doesn't go with you. I'm like, are you kidding me? Dude, that's all kinds of wrong. That's wicked, right? My friends, be free. Be free. Your allegiance is to the Lord Jesus Christ. Love him. Follow him. Experience his love for yourself. I like John the Baptist's example. 
And so they do it, right? They go after Jesus. Verse 38 tells us, turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? I find this, I find this verse astonishing. Jesus asked them, what do you want? What an amazing question. First of all, what other quote-unquote gods out there ever asked their servants, their subjects, what they want? They don't ever ask that. They tell you what they want. They put demands and requirements and expectations on their followers, their worshipers, their servants, their subjects. Jesus, with his very first disciples, this is the beginning, right? His first interaction, the first thing he says in this gospel is, what do you want? I love that. It's amazing to me. Jesus' very first followers approach him and he asks them this question, what do you want? That's how it's said in the NIV. There's a principle in theology, if you study theology, called the law of first mention. And basically it requires you to go to that portion of scripture where a doctrine is mentioned for the first time and to study the first occurrence in order to get the fundamental meaning, the inherent meaning of that doctrine. So I'm kind of conditioned to recognize first things. When something first shows up, it kind of captures my attention. And in John's gospel here, the first time Jesus has an encounter with his disciples, I think there's something telling there for us. Here Jesus encounters his first disciples for the first time, and what happens? He asks them what they want. Different translations just kind of communicate the same thing, but say it a little bit differently. The Amplified Bible says, what are you looking for? Or um, what is it you wish? The message says, what are you after? The New American Standard and the New King James Version say, what do you seek? Well, the key word used here in Greek is zata, uh, zateo, Z-A. Uh, excuse me, zeteo, Z-E-L-E-O. According to Thayer's Greek lexicon, this is a verb meaning to seek in order to find. What is to seek in order to find? There's, a, there's an intentionality in this. It's the same word used in, in Mark 11, uh, verses 9 and 10, when Jesus says, So I say to you, ask, and it will be given you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives the one who seeks, finds, and to the one who knocks the door, we open. Right? That's the same word, seek, there, that's used here. What do you want? What do you seek? To seek is to sort of find. It's the same, same word used in, in Luke. And, and just, by the way, what's the context of this asking, seeking, and knocking statement from Luke 11? Well, it goes on in verse 11, this, Jesus says this, he says, which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The context of this, of this intentional, focused, purposed asking and seeking in order to find 
is that he would give us the Holy Spirit and it would be a good thing because he's a good dad and he knows how to give good gifts to his children. So Jesus asked his disciples, what are you seeking? What do you want? How would you answer that question? You met Jesus for the first time and instead of him making requirements on you, he says to you, what do you want? What do you seek? How would you answer it? Might be worth pondering that. What do you want? How would you respond to the person that you, was, that you suspected was this long-awaited Messiah? It wasn't like you were meeting anyone. You've already been told by a, a leader that you trust, a prophetic voice that you trust, that this is the Lamb of God, implicating that he's the Messiah. In your first personal interaction with them, he asks you this question, what do you want? John and Andrew responded with a question of their own. They said, where are you staying? I can't help but wonder for a second, you know, for, for John and Andrew, was this a humming, humming, humming moment? You know, they, they kind of look at Jesus like, uh, I didn't expect him to ask us a question, I don't even know what to say, uh, where are you staying? You know? I don't know if it, was, if it was something like that, like looking at each other like, uh, he's talking to us, you know. Jesus doesn't seem thrown at all by the fact that they would answer his question with a question of their own. He says, come. And you'll see. Come and see. I love this first interaction between Jesus and his disciples. Come and see. In other words, Jesus is inviting John and Andrew. Now we know this because we know the rest of the story. But this is the beginning of it. Jesus is inviting John and Andrew to come and be part of his life. Come and see. Come and see where I live. Come and see where I stay. Where I make my home. Come and see. Take note. Jesus didn't live some cloistered, you know, ultra-private life. He taught and he discipled others by allowing them to experience life with him. Jesus is relational. Jesus was relational, and he is relational. Bear in mind, he could have done this any way he wanted to. This is not happenstance. This isn't, oops, the whole plan has gone awry. Thinking on my feet. How do I make, how do I improv and make this happen? This is what he wanted. He was relational. The Jesus that we know and serve is relational. You have to understand that for Jesus, things like evangelism and things like discipleship, they were relational activities for him. They weren't institutional they weren't systematic. How did you become a disciple of Jesus? You spent time with Jesus. <laughs> you listened to what he had to say. You watched what he did. You got to do the things he did. You did them together. He sent them out to, for you to go do them on your own. It was relational. relational. They shared life together. That's how relationship was done with Jesus. That's how life was done. That's how discipleship, evangelism was done. Sometimes I wonder if our evangelism doesn't seem as effective as we'd like it to be as a church or our discipleship. Maybe it's because it was never designed to be systematic or institutional. It was meant to be relational. Friends spend time with friends, and they influence one another. Friendship. That's the key. 
And verse 39 goes on to say, so they went and saw where he was staying. They went to his house. They went to Jesus' house. And they spent the day with him. Isn't that awesome? They didn't just have coffee for 30 minutes. You know? He didn't give them a Bible tract. He didn't say, here, here, here are the four or five points to my theology, and here are the five requirements that you have to follow in order to follow me. They spent the day together. That's what friends do. Friends spend time with their friends, right? Jesus encounters what would be what would prove to be his very first disciples, and what does he do? He asks them what they want, and then he invites them into friendship. Come and hang out in my house. Astonishing. We serve an astonishing God. And verse 39 ends with this statement. It was about four in the afternoon. I love this. I love that that line's put in there. It was about four in the afternoon. This was obviously a memorable occasion for the gospel writer. He remembers the exact hour. Don't you think you would remember it too? Right? That would be one of the high watermarks of his life. Enough to make it into his gospel. It's also a pretty subtle clue that one of the two disciples who came to Jesus was John, indeed, John the Apostle, the one who wrote this gospel. I mean, I remember the day I gave my life to Christ. Maybe you remember yours too. For me, it was 9.30 p.m. on Thursday, July 1st, 1976. It had a profound, life-changing impact on me. My whole world changed that day in an amazing, amazing way. I've told you that story before, but I can, I can get it. I can get it that he would remember the hour, right? So verse 40 and 42. So after spending the day with Jesus, what's the first thing that Andrew does? He goes and tells his brother, right? Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard that John had, uh, what John had said and, and who followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah. That is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Hey, if you find a good restaurant, what do you do? You tell your friends, man, I had the most amazing meal last night. Next time you go out, you got to go to this place to go and eat. The food is awesome. Right? Or if you see a great movie, right? Oh, man, I just went and saw such and such a movie. It was, boy, it was powerful. It just moved me deeply. If you guys are looking to go out on a movie or rent it or something, this is a great movie. You want to tell your friends about it. I can only imagine... What was happening with Andrew? Here you have a first century Hebrew who believes that he just met their long-awaited Messiah, and he came in a way that we never expected. He let us hang out at his house, man. I can only imagine the passionate zeal that must have erupted out of Andrew when he went and spoke to his brother. He's thinking to himself, i got to tell Peter about this guy. This is Andrew's testimony about who Jesus is. He knows that he knows that Jesus is the Messiah. And that's what he tells his brother. He says, we have found the Messiah. 
Verse 42 goes on to say, Jesus looked at him, Peter, and said, You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. Now, I'll admit, this next part here, this is, this is my take on it. So you don't have to agree with me if you want to. But I don't know. It resonates as true for me. I think that this encounter between Jesus and Peter, I think that this is prophetic revelation. I think when it says that Jesus looked at him, I don't think it means that Peter walked in the room and with his eyeballs, Jesus took notice of the fact that this guy walked in. I don't think that's what it's saying. I say, when it says he looked at him, he was looking at him in the spirit. Nadine and I have done these outreaches and we've trained people with these exercises. And one of the things we do is an exercise called, when I look at you, I see. And we train people how to see in the spirit how to see with eyes of the Spirit, how to see beyond the natural into the supernatural. I think that's what Jesus is doing with Peter right here. Looked. The word looked here. Jesus looked at him. It comes from the same Greek root word, blepo, meaning to, to perceive with the senses. It's the same word Jesus used in John 5.19, the same, same root. When Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father does, the son also does. I think Jesus looked at Simon and prophesied destiny over him. He looked at him, and he, t he spoke what is not as though it was. Paraphrase Romans. Jesus looked at him and saw what was not and spoken into him. He says, you're a rock. Now, for all of Peter's faults, and you do a study on Peter's life, he had quite a few. I mean, he gets rebuked by Jesus. There aren't too many other people I've ever heard of where Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. That's not a high watermark on Peter's life, right? That's pretty rough. Cuts off the servant's ear. He's probably aiming for the middle of his head, but cut the servant's ear off, right? He denies even knowing Christ, right? At the critical moment, he's like, I don't even know him. But on the day of Pentecost, who was the man? On the day that the church was birthed, what we know as the church, capital C, the day the church is birthed, who's the man? Peter's the man that day. He's the one who stands up in front of everybody. It's profound. Peter was the man that day. Now, there are different applications to Matthew 16, 18. I understand that. But Jesus does say, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. I tell you what, in light of Pentecost, in light of Pentecost, I'm saying Jesus gave Peter an accurate prophetic word at that first meeting. You're a rock. Peter, you are a rock. And so why do I think that this is prophetic revelation? Because he does the exact same thing. The pattern repeats itself just a few verses later with Philip and Nathaniel. The exact same pattern. We see the same process played out with Philip and Nathaniel. Jesus does the same thing to Nathaniel that he does to Peter. Let's take a look at that. Verse 43 and 44. The next day Jesus decided 
to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. He followed him. There's nothing dramatic recorded about the call of Philip. Jesus says, follow me, and Philip does it. But Philip's reaction is the same as Andrew's. He's got to tell somebody about this. And so what does he do? He goes and finds Nathanael. Verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Can you see that there'll be some passion, there'll be some, some intensity, some excitement about this, right? I got to go tell somebody. Just like Andrew had to tell had to tell Peter, Philip had to tell Nathaniel. This is Philip's testimony as a witness of Jesus Christ. He declares that, that he's the Messiah. He declares that Jesus is the Messiah and the Savior predicted in both the, in the Old Testament law and prophets. Nathaniel's response is interesting in, in verse 46. Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Nathaniel answered, Nathaniel asked, Come and see, said Philip. Obviously, Nathaniel has a strong reaction. He obviously has some, some issues of people born or people who come from Nazareth. It's kind of like people from New York, like Nadine and I feel about people from New Jersey. New Jersey? Are you kidding me? Forget about it. Jersey, nothing good comes from New Jersey. I'm pit of America, New Jersey, really? I think if Jesus was born in the United States, he'd have come from New Jersey. <laughs> Philip wisely just sidesteps the whole issue and simply offers, come and sing. And then Jesus rocks Nathaniel's world. Verses 47 and 49. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said to him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus said, I saw you while you were under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You're the king of Israel. Again, I say this is prophetic revelation at work. Jesus saw him. I wonder, is it possible, is it possible that Nathaniel liked to pray or meditate on the things of the Lord while sitting under the shade of an actual fig tree? And that in a vision, Jesus saw him doing that. It is interesting to note that back at that time, the term under the fig tree was a phrase used by rabbis to describe meditating on Scripture. So Jesus could be alluding to that too. He says, I saw you under the fig tree. It could mean that Jesus said, I saw you when you were meditating on Scripture. So maybe Nathaniel was spending time with the Lord, meditating on Scripture, and Jesus says, I saw you there. Or maybe he was just hanging out under the shade of a fig tree. I don't know. Scripture doesn't really say. But what it does say is Jesus saw Nathaniel, and when he told Nathaniel that he saw him, it rocked his world. It had to be more than, well, I was on this hillside, and I saw you on that hillside resting under a tree, right? Why would, why would that be enough for Nathaniel to have a reaction that says, you're the king of Israel, right? 
Why? Because he had eyes that actually functioned properly? That there's nothing dramatic there. There's more to it than that. Can you see that? So he rocks his world. And we can tell from his reaction in verse 40, 49. Nathaniel declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You're the king of Israel. So <clears throat> we finish up chapter 1 and verses 50 to 51. Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You'll see greater things than that. He then added, very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Wow. Again, I think this points to prophetic revelation because Jesus' response to him is, you, you're impressed with this level of revelation? Let me tell you something. Greater supernatural things are going to happen than the supernatural thing you just experienced by me telling you I saw you. You're going to see greater things than that. You're going to see heaven open. You're going to see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So Jesus promises Nathaniel that he'll see even greater signs. I think this phrase, angels ascending and descending, is interesting on the Son of Man. It's probably a connection to the dream that Jacob had in Genesis 28, where Jacob saw a ladder from earth to heaven and angels ascending and descending on it. I think it's probably a reference to that. But what Jesus is telling him, what Jesus is telling Nathaniel, what he tells us, he says, I'm that ladder. That's me. That he's the link. He's the link between heaven and earth. That he's the way. He's the, the door. He's the portal. He's the connecting point between heaven and earth. That he's the only mediator between God and man. You know, it seems like a rather obscure reference but it was certainly meaningful to Nathaniel. So I, I just, again, I'm wondering here. There's nothing in Scripture to prove this, but I wonder. Could it be that if Nathaniel was studying and meditating on Scripture underneath the fig tree, could it have been that he was studying that very section from Genesis 28? That might have added to the intensity of his response, right? I don't know. Maybe we can, ask, we can ask Nathaniel that someday when we get to heaven. So it ends, um, verse 51 ends with the term son of man. So let me just um, share something with you. Commentator David Guzik, if, if you like to do some study and part of the study you like to do is to read uh, other commentators, David Guzik's one that I recommend. I really like um, most of what he has to say. Honestly, I don't agree with everything Anybody says, but I find a lot more meat than bones in what David Guzik has to share. This is what he has to say concerning that term, son of man. The idea behind this phrase is not the perfect man or the ideal man or the common man. It is, um, instead, it is a reference to Daniel 7, 13 and 14, where the king of glory comes to judge the world, um, is called the son of man. Jesus used this title often because in his day, it was a messianic title free from political and nationalistic sentiment. 
When a Jewish person of that time heard king or Christ, they often thought of a political or military savior. Jesus emphasized another term, often calling himself the Son of Man. So, so we see, in, in this text here, we see uh, four different ways of coming to Jesus. And in our study of this chapter, we see five different witnesses of Jesus. So this section of John shows us four different ways that people come to Jesus. Andrew and John came to Jesus because of the preaching of John the Baptist. Right? Somebody else preached, led him to Jesus. Peter came to Jesus on the word of his brother. Andrew went to him and said, dude, you've got to go check this guy out. Philip came to Jesus as a result of a direct call. Jesus said, follow me. Philip did. Nathaniel came to Jesus in spite of his personal prejudices, right? He wasn't too thrilled with people from Nazareth. And by a supernatural encounter with Jesus, Jesus looked at him, prophesied to him, rocked his world. Um, and, you know, these are not the only ways. These are just four ways with four of the disciples, five of the disciples that we see. There are lots of different ways that people can come to Jesus. It's not cookie-cutter. And our look into this gospel so far has shown us that there are five witnesses given to us of who Jesus is. Five different witnesses testifying to the identity of Jesus. And really, how much more testimony does anyone need? We have John the Baptist testified that Jesus is eternal, that he is the one anointed with the Holy Spirit, that he is the Lamb of God, that he is the Son of God. We have Andrew testified that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. Philip testified that Jesus is the one prophesied of in the Old Testament in both the law and the prophets. Nathaniel testified that Jesus is the Son of God, the King of Israel. And as we looked into the study, we have the very Father testifying to the identity of Jesus. Where he says, this is my Son, whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. Now we got that from Matthew 3, but as we were looking into this gospel. We've got five witnesses to the identity of Jesus. Jesus is the Word. He is the Word made flesh. He's the Word who came and dwelt among us. He is God. We have, we have, this would stand up in the court of law. We had all these witnesses. Final thoughts before we pray. I love what this study has shown so far. I love how it emphasizes certain things concerning the life of Jesus. I want you not to miss it. So far, there's an emphasis on both the relational aspect of Jesus' ministry and the supernatural aspects of Jesus' life. Relational in that, from the beginning, it speaks about the relationship between the Father, Son, and Spirit. This intimate, perfect circle of love this purest of love that's shared among the members of the Trinity. And it speaks about his relationship with his disciples. And he was friends with them. I love that he said, 
They wanted to know where he lived. He said, come and see. And they spent the rest of the day together at Jesus' house. That's relational. I love the relational aspect. Guys, we serve a relational God. It's, it is one of the demarcation points that separates him from every other deity, man-made deity, that exists. He wants to have a relationship with you. That's astonishing. Nothing else fits that pattern because there's none like him. No one like him. I love how just this first chapter alone emphasizes the relational nature of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the supernatural aspect, just there's a whole plethora of supernatural events that take place. The audible voice of God, the spirit coming down like a dove. John the Baptist, revelatory gifts and recognizing Jesus as the Messiah. Jesus' revelatory gifts with Nathaniel and very possibly Peter as well. The promise of greater things, including an open heaven and angelic activity. We have a wonder filled. We have an awe inspiring God. He's amazing. Our God's amazing. Listen to me. Especially you guys who've been doing this Jesus stuff for a long, long time. Listen to me today, please. There's more. There's more. There's a whole lot more. Especially for those of you who've been following the Lord for decades. Listen to me. From one who's followed him for decades, listen to me. How big is God? How big is he? If you could measure him, how big is he? In your whole life, in, in all your experience, what percentage of God do you know? What percentage? I think it would be arrogant if I said to you, I have 1% of the knowledge of God. I think my whole being would just explode. I would disintegrate from the weightiness of 1% of him. So even if you feel like I've gotten to a point in my journey where I feel confident, I feel secure, I feel stable in my knowledge of God, wouldn't we have to agree that there's so much more? That we've barely scratched the surface to who he is. And I think we've barely scratched the surface and at least these two points in our own relationship with him. I think there's so much more to experience. There's such a deeper place for us yet to go with him. And I believe the church as a whole has barely scratched the surface when it comes to the supernatural aspects of who our God is. And how he wants to live and operate and function in our lives. And through us, guys, there's more. Please don't be easily satisfied. Don't be content. Because he has so much more to offer you. It's only the beginning. I don't care if you've done this for five decades. It's only the beginning. There's so much more. So let's pray. Why don't we stand and pray? Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would make us hungry and thirsty. Lord, I pray that you would 
make of us men and women who hunger and thirst for right relationship with you. And by that, I mean the fullness of relationship with you. Lord, I'm convinced in my own journey, and I'm sure it's true, my friends, we've barely scratched the surface of who you are. We've barely got our foot in the door. Lord, take us deeper. Reveal to us, oh God, your nature, your character. Take us deeper into the extravagance of your great and lavish love for us, oh God. Take us into deeper places of intimacy with you. And Lord, I pray for myself and for my friends here today that we would experience it, that we not be content to have a faith that resides in our head only, but that our whole being, our bodies, our souls, our spirits would experience who you are that we feel the full weight and the full impact of your character, of your nature, of your powerful presence in our lives in new and wonderful and awe-inspiring ways. Lord, we ask for more. We ask for a greater experience of who you are. Lord, take us to that place of friendship with you. Do it, Lord. Do it, Lord. Do it, Jesus. Do it, Lord. With your eyes closed, is there anybody here who needs prayer today? Can you just just raise a hand if you came today and said, oh boy, I just need somebody to pray for me. Okay, I see, see a couple of hands. Let's pray. Lord, be with my friends today. Lord, they, they've got real needs. There's stuff going on in their lives and, and they need you to come and be their strength, and to be their support. Lord, I pray that you touch them in their physical bodies, and that you make them healthy and strong. Lord, I ask that you bring supernatural peace to their heart, that you, your blessing and peace would be on them and their loved ones. The needs that go out from them, oh God, there are ripples. Still the waters, I pray. Lord, there are those here today, they've, they've got spiritual need. They want more of you, they feel... Like they don't know how to get from here to there. And so, Lord, I pray instead, would you come to them? It's like the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Lord, you come to them and let them experience you in real ways, in tangible ways. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys have an awesome day. I will see you throughout the week.